You're listening to Sprogcast, a podcast for people interested in pregnancy, birth, infant feeding and early parenting. Sprogcast is presented by Mark Harris and Karen Hall and sponsored by Pinter and Martin. Hello and welcome to listeners old and new. On Sprogcast today we're talking about parenting and I'm very nervously interview author and psychologist Philippa Perry about her new book. Um, this is episode 47 of Sprogcast. I'm Karen Hall. And I'm Mark Harris. We at Sprogcast love being sponsored by Pinter and Martin. For all your pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition, yoga and fiction needs. And they're at pinterandmartin.com. We also now collect uh, sponsorship at patreon.com slash sprogcast where you can sign up for badges, t-shirts and other exciting rewards. You can support the show from as little as one US dollar per month. Though if you can stretch to two dollars, we'll send you a badge. This month, we're sending extra big thank yous to our new Patreons. Aisha Pusi, Sarah McMahon and Emma Andrews. Thank you very, very, very much. The Patreon thing's really important to us, isn't it, Karen? It is. It, it's a way for us to carry on uh, doing this stuff, um, knowing that the listeners value what we're doing. At the moment, it's a circular thing that means we can buy T-shirts and badges to send to people who sponsor us. <laughs> I know. And I've got loads of T-shirts, living out, you know, just desperate to be uh, sent out. Um, but as we carry on, and we plan to carry on, I have no intention of stopping. Um, knowing that we have an audience that wants us to do what we do is very important. Yeah, it's that that kind of sense of support that we get from it that's really, really nice. But also just the fact that people listen is good enough for me. Uh, uh, and me. I, you know, I was at a conference two days ago in Ipswich, uh, a positive birth conference, I think, or was it normal birth conference? About 200 people there. And a uh, number of people came up and said the benefit that they get from... Uh, listening to Sprogcast on an ongoing basis. And that's the main reason I do it. Although the main reason I, I do it is to have a conversation with you once a month, Karen. Absolutely same here. No, I mean that, actually. In fact, if we didn't have this opportunity, I'd be very disappointed. That was very interesting that you, you felt I didn't mean it. People are always surprised when I tell them we've only met physically about four times. Yeah. And, and yet I would class you, and this might sound bizarre to you, but I would class you amongst, you know, my closest friends, which is a bit strange, isn't it? Utterly bizarre. It is really. It probably points to the destitute nature of my friendships rather than our friendship. But you can edit all this, Karen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what are we talking about today, Mark? Oh, we're talking about parenting, aren't we? We are. But I am interested with why you talk about it being a nervous interview because i'm a massive fan of philippa perry and she's the most famous person outside of our circles that we've ever interviewed on the show <laughs> i so, was completely tongue-tied are you a bit of a fangirl then yeah oh but any anyway you enjoyed your conversation with philippa yes yes i did but i was totally tongue-tied I had to write out questions, which I don't normally do. I'm looking forward to hearing it. So are we going to run it now? Let's do that. Today I'm talking to Philippa Perry. I'm very excited to have a chat with her about her new book that's just come out, which is called... The book you wish your parents had read and your children will be glad that you did. That's a long title. It is a long title, but it's the best one I could come up with. Well, it certainly describes the book well. Thank you. Would you like to tell our listeners just a little bit of background? I'm Philippa Perry. Uh, I'm a psychotherapist. I've been in practice a long time. And I'm coming at the idea of parenting because I work with grown-up people who have been children. And as we all know, we all have the experience of being a child and then being an adult but we never quite lose the person we were. Um, in fact, I think the idea of an adult is a bit of a scam, actually. I think we are, we are born people and we stay as people. And the idea of dividing us into to babies, children and adults um, it, it could be a sort of false con construct, I think. You sort of carry your 
inner child within you all the time anyway. And one of the things I'm trying to convey in the book is that um, we are but links in a chain. You know, we pass on um, not only our genes, but um, our culture, um, what our parents did to us, even if we don't want to pass it on, we, we somehow find ourselves doing that. And we are mirrors for our children and they get an idea who, who they are through looking at us. And that's how we understood who we were by looking at our parents. And I like this idea of a chain sort of going back through generations and going forward through generations. And the idea that we actually do have some control over our link and we can reshape it for the sake of our relationship with our children and for the sake of their relationship with their children. So it's putting the onus on parents to um, do a better job than their own parents did. Um, I'm not saying a better job. <laughs> a different job. <laughs> not a competition. I'm just maybe saying let's be aware of what we're doing. Let's not just work on automatic. So you start the book with how the reader was parented. I say when, uh, if you have a problem with your kid, don't just focus on the child. Focus on your relationship because that's where you'll find your solution. And I do start the book actually by getting parents to look at themselves and to look to see how they normally operate, what their normal responses are to things. And it's so it so often happens that children push us to our limits and we can feel very triggered by our children. And I'm asking parents to look at those triggers to see what they're about. Because although our parents probably loved us, some of the time they may not have liked us very much. And when we get into that territory with our own children, we don't want to be reminded that we ourselves weren't liked very much. So we tend to sort of react rather than reflect on those occasions. I mean, I give an example in the book of um, a woman who loses it with her kid when she asks for help getting off a climbing frame when this woman thinks she's too big to ask for help. And she's absolutely furious and just wants to push it away and blame it on the kid. And it's not until a week later when the kid's on a climbing frame again that she actually stops to think, what the hell was that about? Why did I react like that? And the child actually asks her that question. Why did you react like that last week? Why didn't you help me like you did this week? And she, she realizes it's because... Her mother never let her do anything on her own, never let her get down off a climbing frame on her own because she was a, a princess wrapped in cotton wool. And she didn't want to do that to her own daughter. And when her own daughter seemed to want that, she just felt furious. We, we often have these sort of flashpoints. And it's not that we can ever avoid having them. You know, our child can trigger our moods when, um, you know, our sort of bad moods when when they're say very vulnerable because we don't like to be reminded of when we were helpless um so rather than feel with our child we might have a sort of anger flashpoint so i talk about that in the book sort of like what what presses your buttons and when you feel your buttons being pressed don't think first of all it must be the child's fault but look back to see what of your old feelings that have laid in storage for so very long are, are coming up. Whatever um, stage your kid is at, you are liable to remember on a bodily level some of the feelings you had at a similar age. So we can be quite surprised by feelings and moods we have as our children grow. Mm. I was quite struck by that. Um, part and particularly that anecdote and I did then sort of spend some time sitting around thinking about all the the um, particular trigger points for me and then I started thinking about how difficult it is to f even find time in modern parenting life to reflect on what your triggers are and why you behave the way you do. Yeah this time thing is um, we all feel pushed for time and rushed and the great thing is about children is that they don't. 
And the great thing about kids is that they can pull you right back to the present because they live in the present. And I think the greatest gift we can give ourselves is to live there with them and not be in such a rush and be in such a hurry. They can teach us to be in the now again. And we need to be in the now with them if we're going to have a relationship with them. We so often operate on what's going to happen next and what we have to do next. And then we miss out the chance to connect with them in the now so often. Mm, Mark, my co-host, talks a lot about being present as opposed to being there. Yeah, it's that, it's that sort of thing. I'm, I'm aware that um, your podcast goes out to midwives and doulas and, and healthcare people. Um, and I was wondering whether you wanted to talk about, uh, I do have a chapter on pregnancy. You do. I found that really interesting. Obviously, that's that's the particular thing that um, for us, for our audience is, is highly relevant. Um, yeah. Though the whole thing, really, because you're talking about a way of life as much as a way of parenting. And actually, it's this long view. It's the long view, yeah. Getting it across to parents, and particularly antenatally, that it's a long game, it's not, there aren't quick fixes, is yeah. really, really hard. So yeah, that would be a useful thing to talk about. Yeah. Parents-to-be, in particular, will find it very hard to, I think, to understand, to get their heads around the things you say like that there is no risk to responding to a coercive cry yeah yeah so there's there's no nothing that can go wrong if they always meet their child's needs and from my point of view that's blindingly obvious but yeah. i meet people every single week who would say but then we're going to create a rod for our own backs etc etc yeah. how do we get past that um i can remember uh once when my daughter was about two and she just had a growth spurt and i was at my father's house and she stood up under the piano which she'd managed to do with impunity before but she'd grown an inch and she smashed her head on the top of the the the, the piano and of course there were an awful lot of tears and i did my best to soothe her you know i agreed that it must really hurt and it was going to hurt for a bit and it would get better and I held her and I soothed her and I rocked her and I felt with her. And, you know, I contained her hurt and made her feel safe. And my father said, for goodness sake, put that child down. She'll hurt herself all the time if, if, if you keep giving her a fuss like that. And I got, I got an insight then of what I must have had as a child from him. Like, if no soothing, if I was hurt. And no wonder... I had found soothing myself so difficult to get a handle on. No wonder I'd need, needed so many years of therapy because you learn to soothe yourself when you are soothed in relationship with another person. Yeah. If your parent has got a, a, a habit of holding you when you've hurt yourself or comforting you and say it hurts now but it's going to be better soon I'm going to stay with you until you feel better if you've got a parent that does that either verbally or non-verbally you're not frightened when you hurt yourself it's not a big deal because you know it will pass it will get better but if you don't have that not only have you hurt yourself but it's a very scary place because you don't know where it's going to go or you know, you want comfort and it's not coming. Mm, that's so hard when you live in the present. Yes. You, you, yeah, you do live in the present. And so, you know, you know when you stub your toe, you go, it hurts, it hurts, it hurts, it hurts. And you know it's going to stop soon. Yeah. But if you don't know it's going to stop soon, you not only have the pain, you have the fear of it going on forever mm. or something being I don't mean the bone, but it might be the bone. Something <laughs> is broken. You know, it's a horrible feeling. Mm. And lots of parents do have this fear that um, if they attend to what their child needs, and when a baby, a little baby cries, it's a need because they need you to relate with in, or, on, in order to, to form. They form in relationship with you. So when a baby is crying out for company, it's not nothing. 
that, that time for them goes much more slowly because they're in the present and this is their only experience. So when they're lonely and desperately lonely and crying, it isn't, it isn't nothing. It, it isn't that it doesn't matter. It really does matter. And I think uh, it's difficult for us to see that from the child's perspective. So we have the God with own back story, which really is just so we don't have to feel with them. You know, so we don't have to feel how it much hurt if you hit your head on the piano or stub your toe or feel lonely. So is it a way of detaching ourselves from feeling that pain ourselves? Yes, it is. When we go rod with own back, it's a way of not empathising. Hmm. Your whole um, sort of approach is, as I read it, uh, very much about developing empathy and compassion. I I think we all like it when people feel with us and babies and children are no different. I have a little catchphrase, which is feel with, don't deal with. So if your kid's going through a bad time, just like when you're going through a bad time, they want someone to hear them, see them and listen and help them find a way through it, not to find a way through it for them, not to fix them. I don't think anybody likes to be fixed. We want to be heard. We want to be felt with. We want someone else to know what we're going through. We want to be kept company in our in our pain as well as our joy. I think we find it very easy to keep somebody company when they're laughing and, and giggling. Um, But if we don't keep them company when they're sad as well, they can begin to feel that a part of themselves is not acceptable and therefore on some level they aren't acceptable. So it's really important for someone's future mental health that all their moods are kept company with, as it were. Hmm. You know, you you keep them company in the bad times as well as the good times and then they feel fully acceptable as a human being. If you only like them when they're laughing, we don't like them when they're crying, they feel somehow they are on some level unacceptable. It, it feels like a, a bit like this is what's wrong with the whole world. Yeah. Especially in our modern times. <laughs> yeah. And I think we will, if we take these lessons to heart, we'll bring up a more moral generation because... If we feel empathy for other people's pain, we're not going to push it aside as unimportant or blame them for it. I'm feeling a bit pessimistic about society taking this on board at the moment. Well, I just do what I can. Yes. (laughs) If you do what you can, which is what you're doing, and I do what we can, you know, we do what we can as individuals, but we do add up. You're right. Chin up, Karen. Carry on. (laughs) <laughs> I liked what you wrote about um, it helps if we don't think about our unborn born child as something that might go wrong. And it really made me think about the pressure that parents put on themselves to have perfect pregnancy and a perfect birth and a perfect child. If we get into the habit of thinking like that, we can think of our child as a project to be perfected rather than a person to relate to. You know, we don't love someone because they're perfect. They're not a work of art. They're somebody we relate to who relates to us. And this is what this is what we're bringing forth, a member of the tribe, you know, not, not a work of art, not a project, a person. Of course, things can go wrong. Genes can go wrong. You know, pregnancies can go wrong. Or they might not go wrong. They just might go differently. But, you know... You can have a wonderful, wonderful life if you don't have 10 fingers and 10 toes. And I think people put too much on this perfect perfection thing. Because how can even a a so-called perfect baby live up to this perfect? They're going to disappoint at some point. Um, And so perfect, good, all these adjectives really don't help us. That's true. And that's interesting considering, certainly in my social media bubble, there's an awful lot of celebration of non-perfect attributes going on and being body positive and being accepting of everybody in all of their different states. And yet, antenatally, there's this real determination to have everything come out just right. Yeah, we do try and control our pregnancy. And, you know, it's right that we follow 
good medical advice and, you know, don't get drunk or take cocaine or anything like that that's going to damage the fetus. But I think there's what um, anthropologists called a lot of sympathetic magic going on. I mean, in every culture around the world, there are so many do's and don'ts for pregnancy. And this gives us a sort of an impression that if we just follow all the rules, be they medical advice or old wives' tales or whatever, then we'll be all right. And there, is, there isn't that control. We can't control it. It gives us a, a false sense of security almost. But, you know, it's not that worrying about it's going to do any good. Yes, that that makes it very difficult for antenatal teachers. Just even just the context of the birth, the fact that because um, we take such a very risk averse approach, it gives the impression that you can make everything safe. Yeah, I mean, pregnancy and giving birth, there are risks, and um, you know, it's, it's a consequence. Of, it's to do with nature. It's not. It's not something that we have as much control over as we give as we're led to believe indeed um i just wanted to say thank you for this 10 pages you wrote about parenting teens the whole book was useful but that bit was really spectacularly useful for me as the mother of a 12 year old oh really what what aspect of it was useful to you uh just um the reminder you know i've I've read faber and maslish and various other books yeah on parenting and those that are applicable to teenagers. I mean, everything is applicable to teenagers because learning to communicate with a baby is the same all the way through. But then little things change as they go through the phases that they go through and their brain doesn't catch up with their bodies and things are difficult for teens. They are because uh, they do tend to see the world in black and white. They're getting a rush of new hormones and we know ourselves after the pregnancy hormones that we had um, you know what that does to your feeling and thinking it, it does alter it it doesn't make it bad or worse but it alters it and then that takes some getting used to I really recommend uh, watching the Netflix series Big Mouth we're on it oh, <laughs> it's so fun for adolescent girls and boys that love it yeah we have been enjoying that <laughs> yeah there's something you can sort of do together that People ask me, um, you know, how can I get my teen to empty the dishwasher and contribute to the house? And I think, well, you're asking me a bit late because your 18-month-old really did want to empty the dishwasher and you shooed her away. So I think if you want really cooperative children, you involve them in what you're doing from the start. And remember that the goal is not to have an empty dishwasher by the end of it but to have taught or modelled collaboration together. So if the kid starts to empty the dishwasher and put the plates on the floor, you watch them and you let them do it and you notice how carefully they're putting the plates down and not breaking them. And um, you say, you know, I watched you take that out very carefully. And, you know, which then they'll associate doing things like that with being loved and loving. And so they'll be emptying the dishwasher because they love to take care of you, of the house, of themselves. That's how you get cooperation. It's very difficult once you know they've got the motor skills to do it, to suddenly go, now you do it. (laughs) Yes. I'd just written a review of your book and concluded that most people reading it would wish they'd read it sooner. Yeah, and it's never too late as well. Yes, that does come across. Parents hold sway over their children, uh, over how children feel about themselves for as long as the parents live, I think. I, I mean, most probably, in most cases, it means a lot if your parent says to you, I'm really proud of you, or you did such a great job there, or, oh my goodness, you've been made a consultant, that's great. Yeah, and the opposite as well. Yes, um, it means more coming from a parent than it does from anyone else. And I think we forget that as parents. Um, so when we sort of say to our child, out of a place of love, because we want everyone to love them as we do, yellow really doesn't suit you. They feel completely squashed by it. Say, but I'm wearing a yellow suit all day. There's nothing I can do about it. You know? yeah. But... 
I think a good rule of thumb is to go, don't criticize your grown-up kid any more than you would your grown-up friend. So if you like something they're wearing or doing slightly less than you could like it if they did it differently, you probably don't need to share that because it carries too much weight and it's working for them. So why would you? So we add respect to the empathy. (laughs) Just a generally good rule for life. It's a really good rule for life. I mean, a lot of people talk about love, but a lot of harm has been done in the name of love, you know, on, on starting on the scale, criticism. But not many people talk about respecting their children, respecting their babies. Because if we respect our babies and children, they, are, they learn how to, they take that up and they learn how to respect as well. Yeah, it's about modelling the behaviour you want to see and the yeah. attitudes and, and just, you know, helping them to embody that. And when it comes to relationships, we have to respect a baby's space and a, and a baby's and a child's pace and um, that they take longer than we do to have a reaction to something. So we have to leave an extra space in order to get some sort of dialogue going. So when with, with your with a tiny, tiny baby, you watch them and when they do do a gesture or something, you can follow it or you can mimic it or you can can start a sort of to and fro thing. They'll do this to and fro very, very naturally from birth. I mean, even the birth process itself is like contraction, rest, contraction, rest. So that might be a start of this to and fro, these beginnings of dialogue. And we need to leave space for the kid to get a sense of connection and dialogue with us. So rather than picking a baby up and uh, just putting them in the car seat, just leave a bit of time and say, I'm going to pick you up now. And it's just so wonderful when you get in the habit of doing that, that when you say that, you know, at eight or nine months, the baby puts his arms in the air to help you pick him up because he knows what's coming. That's the sort of start of start of it I think it's such a beautiful thing Mm, yes the relationship building there and also starting to teach them about bodily autonomy you know I'm going to do this to you will gradually become you know is it okay if I do this to you yeah can we both do this or you know just moving it along from there the last thing I want to ask you is why is it a parenting book for parents who don't buy parenting books well I objected to that wholeheartedly that was my editor who wrote that on the back of the proof copy and it won't be on the back of the other copy because I love parenting books and I've got so much from them as I put in the acknowledgements of the book there's many parenting books I mm. really got a lot from and I I encourage people to read as many as they want I think what she means it's not a tips or tricks book yeah that's what I took from it <laughs> but looking into the relationship look looking in how relationships are made how relationships are maintained how they're deepened how we can maintain a great connection and what to do if we lose it that's what it's about oh yeah this is much more fundamental than the shopping lists and yes it's not about tippy tittery mugs or whatever they're called yeah (laughs) yes thank you Philippa it's been really interesting to talk to you thank you Karen so the book is My book's called The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read and Your Children Will Be Glad That You Did. And it's out on the 7th of March? It's out on the 7th of March. And why it's called that is that we inherit so many patterns from our parents that it would be so much easier to have an easy flowing relationship with our children if our parents had read this book. But don't worry, you can pass it on to your kids and they'll have an easier time of it. It's never too late. No. Thanks very much indeed, Karen. Great to see you. Thank you, Philip. So, Karen, fangirl that you are. Yes. What were the highlights of that interview for you? I, I find the way she puts things to be succinct and logical. And I've asked her questions outside of doing that interview in other contexts. And she's just given me an answer that's so blindingly obvious. And I've thought, she's really clever and I'm really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> that, that 
kind of uh, way of answering questions does appeal to you, though. Yeah. You are a sceptic. Yep. And I came across her at a festival of learning and with a lot of kind of science communicator type people. I I think that tendency towards scepticism is such a healthy thing. I'm glad you think that. Well, no, generally, you you know, I think we we, we need a dose of scepticism within our industry. We definitely do. And I think I think that there is scepticism and I think there's there's really good evidence based thinking. I'm I'm not alone in this. No, you're not. As ever, my concern about evidence based thinking is that we we don't con ourselves into thinking that we ever arrive at truth that's that's the death blow to science well it's not about truth is it it's about having the best available way of of exploring something yeah the human tendency though is is to grasp towards belief in something like it like it is the truth yeah and i think that there are skeptics who are really bad for that and who will make massive sweeping assumptions that anything that people are describing as natural for example must therefore be a bad thing on the basis that you know people will say vaccinations are unnatural and the skeptics will go measles is natural yeah i know but what i think those folk miss is that the human being and the human developing neurophysiology is part of the evolutionary model as well you know, the minute you put human development, homo sapien development outside of the evolutionary model, you're missing the point. You know, so our ability to develop vaccines, to develop the ability to do a cesarean birth actually occurs inside the evolutionary mm. model. Yeah. So, it, so in that sense, it becomes natural because the only things that's, that are not natural aren't possible. So, for example, if I could run faster than the speed of light, that would be unnatural. At this stage. Yeah, do you, you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. Yes. You, you understand what I'm saying? It's, it's, it, everything we develop as Homo sapien now occurs inside the evolutionary model. So is naturally occurring. So you're saying that if, if humans can do this, then... It falls inside the evolutionary model and becomes natural because it's possible. You know, the old thinking that there was somehow a god who was orchestrating this whole thing um, has led to the mislabeling of things as unnatural, like homosexuality. Anyway, we're supposed to be talking about parenting. I know. So you were really taken with her logical thinking. In terms of the substance of what what she said, what left you with kind of uh, pause for thought? What I was interested in is that she describes it as a parenting book for people who, actually, she said her author, her ed- editor described it as a parenting book for people who didn't buy parenting books. Oh, that's a that's a sneaky marketing line. It's a bit of a judgment, actually. Yeah, who doesn't buy parenting books? People that are not interested in parenting. People who are not in- interested in learning this kind of thing from a book. Yeah. And actually, there are um, writers in our field, like Sheila Kitzinger, I think, said that um, trying to learn parenting from a book, and particularly around breastfeeding, trying to learn it from a book, probably makes it harder. Uh, Yeah, it's kind of a disassociation from the experience itself. (laughs) Do do, do you know what I mean? The idea that I can somehow uh, learn something from a book... Well, but some people like to feel prepared by reading. Like, for example, if I book a holiday, oh yeah, the next thing I will do is go and get a book about the place. Well, now some people are addicted to it. To, you know, I have people on courses that have done course after course after course and are still not sure whether they should do something about their learning. It, it's like their insecurity leads to more training rather than the training being to to kind of get them ready to do something in the world. They're just addicted on training because they're so insecure. Well, and you can see how that might apply to parenting, which in the 21st century is something that is perceived as hugely difficult to do. Yeah, it certainly it, it, it certainly applies to parenting. Hence, the market for parenting books. Yeah, quite. You were talking about Pause for Thought having done the interview. Yeah, so she she's basically saying why can't we all be nice to each other she's um talking about parents having empathy and slowing down and being present with their children which just makes perfect sense doesn't who, it who knew 
(laughs) You know, the idea of treating children like people. Yes. And, you know, you probably come across this. I certainly do in antenatal classes. If we respond to our baby, if we give them too many cuddles, we will create dependent monsters who will never stop needing us. And we haven't got time for that. And they never say we haven't got time for that, do they? But that's the inference. Yeah. And my mum used to say, you're making a rod for your own back there, Mark. Exactly. And I love her and she meant well. But she's coming from a time with a different philosophy about children. And we've mostly, I think, seem to be moving away from the Victorian era. I think so. Well, I think so. But we still have this this assumption that children should be seen and not heard. Yeah, more than than 10 times a week, I catch myself speaking to my son, Doris, in a way that I would speak to no other person. Yeah, yeah. With 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 a hint of disrespect, with with a a lack of acknowledgement for what he perceives his needs are. Yeah, and we do that, don't we, as parents? I think you're right. You know, and sometimes you know, I'll bring it up with my wife, and she'll say, "Yeah, but there is a balance between between offering direction, you know, because of his well-being. You know, like the amount of sweets he he likes to to uh, consume." Yeah, so you can empathise with his need for the sweet without actually giving him the sweet. Exactly. And, and there's the key. There's the key for me, is is me making sure that he gets that I'm empathising with what his felt need is in that moment. Because when he gets the empathy, my interaction doesn't occur as a correction or a punishment or coercive. Yeah, I've, I've found, I've been trying to do this lately and I've found it quite helpful. Hmm. You might argue that I should have started trying to do this 12 and a half years ago. <laughs> it's never too late to try. So key takeaways apart from be kind to one another? Is that not enough for you? <laughs> well, it, it's obvious, isn't it? I mean, it, it's like in the broader world of maternity care. You know, the, the moment you need a policy for kindness, you, you've probably uh, missed the boat, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The point at which you have to remind people of that. There is you're acknowledging that there's a big problem. Yeah, I think so. And and of course the people who are being judged, inverted commas, as being unkind, are also desperately trying to get their human needs met in an environment that is increasingly putting them under the cosh. Right. So that is the thing that I took away from the book thinking that that is slightly problematic in that it's great to say you should spend all your interactions with your child should be at their level and um, you need to just slow down and stop worrying about doing all the other things and totally focus on your child and empathize with them and if they want to stop and look at a ladybird for 10 minutes when you're on when you're trying to catch a bus that's okay there'll be another bus but we can't all live like that all the time no i because my deeply unconscious assumptions and expectations are driving my behaviours all the time. So the book was The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read and Your Children Would Be Glad That You Did by Philippa Perry. Um, we've, we will link it on the website so that you can have a look at it. And there you go. Some interesting stuff to think about. Nice one. Nice one. What's in the news, Karen? I, I'm looking at Sarah Wickham. Which is it? It's the um, Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health statement on their relationship with formula milk companies. Is that yeah, the Sarah yeah. Wickham one? You know, it's a bit late in the game, and it? it's it's like telling us you're just switching now from dial-up to broadband. You know, or well, it's a bit late in the game. Well, the point is that they've made a decision to stop accepting the funding from formula milk companies, and they've made it now. And yes, they've been very slow to make that, but it, it better that they do make that decision compared with the British Journal of Midwifery, who also have put out a statement saying we will continue to accept sponsorship from formula milk companies and that in this day and age boggles my mind have you seen the statement yep they and how do they justify that their engagement with formula milk manufacturers and distributors is guided by the world health organization international code of marketing of breast milk substitutes etc etc um that they accept advertising and sponsorship from all companies operating ethically and in accordance with uk law and regulations Um, So there's a question. We accept that some areas may require a more sensitive approach. And then they 
have applied some restriction to associations with formula milk companies. So they're saying that they, they will have to be transparent and midwives, for example, could, could pay to attend a sponsored study day if they didn't want to accept a free place, if it was a free study day, which seems a bit stupid, um, frankly. Loads of loads of people are going to do that. Because how much do your principles cost? We can't always afford to do that sort of thing. You've got to do training. Yeah. Perhaps better just not to go to that training. It's still sponsored by a formula company. Um, and what they've said is, so advertising that is factual and specific, directed at midwives and states that breastfeeding is best. That That's their requirement. So they're saying it's got to be factual and specific. That So they can't accept an advert that says... Um, this this formula milk will turn your child into a ballerina, even though those adverts are on the television and the name is still going to be associated. Um, it's got to be directed at midwives, not at parents. And this is basically following what the WHO code says. And it's got to include the statement that breastfeeding is best. And the formula milk companies at this point are rubbing their hands together with glee going, that's right, you make it sound like the gold standard so that it's really difficult for everyone to do. And then we will come and save the day with our formula milk when everyone struggles. Yeah, absolutely. The advert on telly that runs uh, still that says informed by 30 years of breastfeeding research. You could probably sum up that statement by saying, look, we need their money. So we're going to justify being involved with them until we can find a source of money somewhere else. Yeah. But the thing that that I think is scandalous is that they boldly state that um, their adverts must include this statement, breastfeeding is best. And if they don't get how much of a problem that is, then for goodness sake, how can they not get that? How can they not see that breastfeeding is best is a problematic statement? Yeah. And some, you know, I've heard rumours that the breastfeeding best slogan came from formula companies in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a problem with that. Me too. So the the fact that the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health have belatedly, as you say, decided to stop taking formula money is is positive. Good. Yeah, and well we salu- and we salute them. We do. We like you. <laughs> what cool. else have we got in the news? I love the fact that that we've got um the publicizing infant feeding line. Thank you. That's fantastic. And how long is that going to go on for? What, the NCT Infant Feeding Line? Yeah, aren't they, aren't they cutting back their... Um... There's a plan to reduce the late night opening hours from um, being open till midnight to being open until 10pm. Um, but at the moment, they're just looking a bit more closely at the numbers before the decision gets made. Is is that a funding, um, funding uh, directed initiative? Oh, goodness knows. I don't get involved in that stuff. But... My my take on this, my take home for you, the listener, is please get everybody to call, especially between 10 and midnight. <laughs> right. And, and, and there's the rub, right? My intuition tells me it's desperately needed. And cutting back the hours is a move in the wrong direction. Yeah. So that's the NCT infant feeding line on 0300 3300 700. And at the moment it is open every day from 8 till midnight. Phone in. If you're breastfeeding, obviously. Well, whether you're breastfeeding or not, we'll support parents in whatever situation they're in. Oh, forgive me. I meant if you're feeding and you have the need of support. So we've got an Observer article here called Left in the Lurch, Mothers-to-be Devastated as Maternity Scheme Ends. All right. Say more about that because I didn't read it. Um, So it says that um, there's a, a midwifery plan held up as a template for future NHS care, which has suddenly closed and nobody knows why. And this is a a maternity service called Neighbourhood Midwives. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. um, Which is NHS funded and which has been withdrawn. Right. Is is there any discussion about the reasons for that other than money? The article is basically saying nobody knows why it's been withdrawn. So um, it's operated in the northeast of London and closed down with very little notice, which meant that there would be women expecting to birth soon who don't have their midwife and also nine midwives have lost their jobs. I mean, one would guess it's a resource-driven uh, decision. Oh, these decisions are so short-sighted. They probably hide behind the numbers in terms of how many women are benefiting and how much it's costing. Mm. 
Uh, I say hide behind the numbers. It, it, the trouble with numbers is that the backstory is lost in the numbers um, in terms of the level of support that are offered to women who may well have gone on to need ongoing support from the NHS had they not received the care that they had. Yeah. So it says here that since 2013, when it started, they've cared for a thousand, more than a thousand women. And it, it was a pilot scheme. So maybe the pilot comes to an end and they simply decide not to renew it, which seems such a shame. Well, particularly when the, the neighbourhood model of service delivery is is held up within the evidence as, over the long term, a cost-effective approach. Yeah. And presumably that's what the pilot was looking at. It would be interesting to, to know a little bit more about this. Maybe we should follow it up. Yeah, and, and maybe get someone from the scheme to talk to us. Mm. Well, they they refuse to talk to the Observer, but obviously they'll come and talk to this broadcast. Yeah, I'm talking about <laughs> I'm talking about one or two of the midwives that were on the scheme and suddenly find themselves having to go back yeah. probably into a core NHS provision. Yeah, maybe they will. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I, I was fascinated by, uh, where is it? I, I posted it from facetofaceafrica.com and and how uh, he, there's historical evidence that cesarean birth was going on in Africa a, a lot longer ago. Mm. Uh, back as far as 1879. Long, long before the arrival of European uh, miss, missionaries, doctors, uh, cesarean birth was occurring uh, inside the culture. You know, with, with relatively you know with relative good effect you know and, and i i found that interesting i didn't like the drawing no i like i don't like it no <laughs> it's funny isn't it sometimes you know being able to read things on facebook is great and you'll often get that picture that draws you in but occasionally something like that comes up as a barrier well i, I think i've been guilty uh of posting to the page things that i hadn't really uh, read thoroughly and uh, I'm going to take that as a, a bit of a uh, telling off. I'm going to tell myself off about that. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, there's going to be always an assumption that if we've put it there, we're endorsing it. Even though we, our philosophy is probably we're putting it there because it's interesting for people to talk about. My, my opinion about it is neither here nor there. You know, so long as what's being discussed is current news. So, Mark, what's inspired you lately? What's inspired me lately? Okay. Two things. Yeah, I think the, the the first thing is very fresh, uh, and that's you know going along to Ipswich, the University of Suffolk, and seeing a room of two hundred to two hundred and thirty um, student midwives, midwives, birth professionals. Uh, I find that inspiring. Mm. You know when you know the majority of people people there with well I say the majority maybe all of the people there were there through choice. Yeah. Oh, that would be what um, I saw a post from the developing doulas about them heading off to see you speak. That must have been that one. Yeah, I, I, it doesn't it never ceases to inspire me that the passion around birth and a commitment to uh, women and their partners experience of birth is running high. You know, I saw Natalie Meddings there and bless her, she gave me a copy of her book and there was just a real buzz about the event and I love that you know I love that that inspires me the stuff in our world often has that lovely warm buzz doesn't it that's why we stay yeah definitely there's just uh I don't know I can't put my finger on it it jars so much every now and then when you go to something and you don't suddenly feel welcomed into a community yeah I, I think there's a mild danger in it you know, because we do enjoy that feeling. Well, the, I do enjoy that feeling that I get when I'm amongst birth professionals. Uh, that sometimes we we are hesitant to invite a dissenting voice. Yes. And and that's a problem. We are. That is true. We've got to allow ourselves to feel uncomfortable sometimes. Yeah, and that will disrupt some of our nice, warm, fuzzy feeling conferences. Yeah. And you know, although I loved it and was inspired by it. You know, I, I think we should open our doors uh, to those who we, we might consider that hold the antipathy of what we consider is important. Yeah, no, you're right. 
So that sounds good. Um, talking of co- conferences, yeah, um, I think we're both going to the Northern Ireland Positive Birth Conference this oh, year. Oh, yeah, and, and Michelle O'Donser. Yeah. Woo-hoo-hoo. So that's quite exciting, isn't it? Yeah, what, are you going, what are you... Still discussing with Michelle, but um, might host a panel or something. Oh, I like that. I like that. Yeah. I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna be talking about transforming birthing culture, adding to yeah. to my thoughts on that already. I'm quite excited about being on the same. Uh, what's the word? Bill. Same bill as as Michelle O'Don, because you know how I know that's that's ace. I like that. I mean, we are published by the same publishing company, Pinter and Martin. True. But I've never really had a conversation with him. And early on in my midwifery career, I, I would have considered him uh, one of the the major influences on my developing thinking. So are you then going to be the nervous and tongue-tied fan? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, if I any, can't imagine it. <laughs> well, if anything, I'm going to be a little bit on edge because I, I do differ from from how... I differ from him in how he expresses his point of view. Hmm. You know, so, sometimes I get it as, as... I get it as quite dogmatic. Yeah. I, and and I, I think that's mi- missing the point by a wide margin. There you go, allowing yourself to feel uncomfortable. Yeah, and has a tendency to create fanatics. Yeah, true. And uh, the world doesn't need any more of them. Shall we move along? Yeah. My other inspiration, sorry, is a book I'm reading at the moment by Paul Hederman. Uh, The subtitle is Reflections on the Twelve Steps. Uh, The main title is Under A-Rest you know under a dash rest and it's an exploration of overcoming habitual behavior uh, using the 12 steps as as the broad guide i acknowledge in myself uh, a tendency towards being controlled by habit so i'm reading this book what's inspiring me particularly about it is it's it's coming at habit habit formation and habit overcoming from a completely different perspective oh interesting stuff yeah it's kind of like transcending the idea that there is a person to actually have habits and and i find all that stuff pretty cool what about you mine is another philippa perry book called how to stay sane right um which i just liked it's a nice little book so you can put it in your pocket and It's um, not dissimilar to what you've just been saying. It's about kind of becoming aware um, of yourself and how you relate to others and getting out of your comfort zone and just sort of exploring a little bit. And it's got sort of exercises and things in it. Oh, nice one. You're going you're gonna to post that to the page. I'm interested in it. Yeah, absolutely. Have you got a signed copy or? No. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't dare ask her to sign a copy of my book. <laughs> I asked Natalie to sign my book, and she that's was all, different. She was all embarrassed. I said, "Oh no, 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 no!" I said, which, "Which book? How to Have a Baby?" Oh, I like that. But the book's lovely. It's a nice, nice book for people who are interested in home birth, in particular. Yeah, I love it. No, I love the book. Yeah. Okay. Well, all that remains today is for us to wish a very happy birthday to Caroline Gallia, whose birthday falls on the 25th of February, which, as you know, is the date that you are all listening because you all listen on the day this comes out. Yes. Have a lovely day. Have a happy birthday, you. Yeah. Caroline's a student midwife, so good for you. Yeah. That's brilliant. Happy birthday. And we'd like to hear from you. Let us know what you think. Oh, yeah. That's Facebook dot com slash sprogcast and at sprogcast on twitter and of course if you're listening on itunes go on leave a review uh, and don't forget to check us out on patreon thanks for listening yeah bye bye you've been listening to sprogcast with karen hall and mark harris the news we've been discussing is on our facebook page facebook.com slash sprogcast And don't forget you can buy great books from pinterandmartin.com using the discount code SPROGCAST at the checkout.